It makes sense to me that we would praise God. He's all-powerful, right? It makes sense that we should confess our sins to him, and we're sinners, right? What just boggles my mind, though, is that he calls us as our Father to come and just ask him for things. To boldly share our requests with him, and he wants to hear them. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's do that now and pray. You can be seated while I pray. Father, it is an amazing thing that we get to come and bring our petitions before you. As we consider your word this morning in a moment in James 2, Father, I bring a request before you for our members who feel like they're on the outside looking in. Maybe they're new here and they haven't quite found a place. Maybe they were hoping for relationships that haven't materialized yet. Maybe they've extended themselves numbers of, of time already and people keep forgetting their names. Or even for long-term members, people have been here for years, maybe decades, and still feel like they're second-class members. As we go to your word this morning, I ask that they would find tremendous hope in your words. I ask for healing for their scars, for their pain, for the ways that they have been perhaps wronged. I ask for forgiveness. As they reflect on this passage and maybe feel like, I wish that was true for me. <laughs> I wish so-and-so wouldn't have said that or done that. Ask for gospel forgiveness. And Father, I ask for the gospel to do a work in our time this morning in your word. For members both on, who feel like they're on the outside, and for members who feel like they're maybe on the inside that we would realize through the power of the gospel, this has been said before, there's no outside or inside in your kingdom. <laughs> We're all one through the blood of Christ. And for those members who feel like maybe they have more influence, who have a stronger, or a louder voice, a more influential voice, place in this church, Father, I ask that the gospel would create a radical love in our hearts. And your word would do work, work that would lead to our speech and our actions, so that there would no longer be an outsider inside. Father, I ask for a unity in our diversity, that we would reflect you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and one, one and three, perfectly unified in your diversity. I ask that as a church, that your word would allow us to be able to reflect that part of who you are. That we would be unified in our diversity. Across ethnic lines, across socioeconomic lines, across gender lines, 
across every other line that's outside in this world that is dividing people, that we would be unified as those distinctions are visible. We wouldn't erase the distinctions, but we would look at the distinctions in light of the work of Jesus, and that we would come together and be a unified body. Not just in theory, but in reality. In the culture here. Father, I thank you that one day that will happen across your people. One day, we will, as we sang earlier, stand before our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will sit down with him and, and eat one meal together. Every nation, tribe, and tongue eating one meal at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I thank you that our brother, my brother, Pastor Jeff, has had the opportunity to do some of that work of seeking unity and diversity as he's been in Nairobi this past week and teaching other pastors and students in the area about the beauty of the gospel and the local church and in missions. Father, thank you that those lectures went well. Thank you for using Jeff in, a, in an effective way. We ask that you would continue to bear fruit in his labors, and would you keep him safe as he comes back? As he got to worship with Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nairobi this morning, I thank you for those brothers and sisters there. Father, I thank you for Ken Mbugwa, the senior pastor at Emmanuel Baptist. Thank you for his many years of faithful ministry. Father, I ask that he would continue to run the race, that you would continue to make him more and more holy, that you'd give him a greater affection for you and for your people. Father, keep him faithful to the end. I ask that his preaching would only grow stronger. I ask that the sermons he preaches would just continue to bear more and more spiritual fruit in Emmanuel Baptist and in Nairobi. Father, I ask that uh, same thing for us this morning as we open up your word in James 2. That you would do more than we could ask or think. We all have certain sinful expectations of what you could do. We've limited you in so many ways, whether we've consciously thought of it or not. Father, I ask that you would just blow those expectations up and do more than we could ask or think through your word. We look to you for that, knowing you love to answer these kinds of prayers. I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe that it was one year ago yesterday that I had my first phone call with Jeff Kelly. Don't remember much about the phone call, except I remember being just really intrigued about this church. I wanted to know more about you all, so that's what we did. I had some interviews, and if you remember, uh, we visited back this last December. Kind of felt like we were dating, didn't it? <laughs> you trying to learn me, me trying to learn you. Besides seeing the eerie resemblance between 
Jeff Kelly and the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, Mike McDaniel. <laughs> One thing I learned early on was that you all were strong on doctrine. You were really, really clear on the gospel, which was very encouraging to me. But there's one nagging question that I just couldn't answer through the interview process. What does life at First Boynton feel like? What does life at First Boynton feel like? And the reality is, you just can't answer that question over Zoom, can you? You probably felt similarly to me. You have to do life with each other to know what life feels like, what the culture is like. So Leah and I and our kids, we moved here with unanswered questions. Is the gospel of grace creating relationships not based on works, but based upon the work of Christ? Is the community here shaped by the cross. I wondered if your gospel doctrine was creating what Ray Ortland calls gospel culture. This is how he defines gospel culture. He asks, what is gospel culture? The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message and the relationships, vibe, Feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness. Indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. That's a beautiful vision. It's a beautiful vision. But the sad reality that you and I probably have felt in some measure is that Many churches don't exemplify this. <laughs> Some churches have great gospel doctrine, but an anti-gospel culture. Ray Ortland again, he says, It is possible sincerely to preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. And if a church is not positively communicating the gospel, both by what it says and by what it is, then that church risks unsaying by its reality what it is saying by its theory. Which is what the Apostle Peter did, right? When he didn't eat with the Gentiles. He was preaching some great gospel doctrine, but his life was unsaying what he was preaching, and he compromised his gospel witness. So as we moved here to Boynton Beach and to minister with you all, I wondered, what about you all? What about First Boynton? What about the elders? Does their gospel culture match their gospel doctrine? Let me just tell you, Eight months in, I am so encouraged. I'm so encouraged. I see 
this happening here. I see a gospel culture continuing to grow and to flourish among you all. There's a tone of love for each other here. There's an aroma of humility. There's a palpable vibe of cheerfulness at First Burlington. So I just hope at the very beginning of this message that you feel encouraged about what God is doing here, what the Spirit is working among you all. It's so clear. It's so obvious. It's so exciting. And it just makes me want to experience even greater sweetness of this gospel culture. It makes me want to press further into this gospel culture that is already here. Because, let's face it, there is room for us to grow. As encouraging as it is, we all see ourselves as imperfect. I know you do. So there's room for us to grow here. I know I can grow. As I consider my own life, I see inconsistencies. I can see, I see inconsistencies between the gospel that I'm preaching, even the message of what I'm about to share, and my character and my conduct. I see a gap between the two. And I want those two things, doctrine and culture, to match more and more in my life and in the life of this church. This is really one of the main concerns of the book of James. He wants our culture, our lives, to match up with our gospel doctrine. He wants holistic disciples of Jesus. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he gives guidance of how gospel doctrine is incompatible with partiality. James helps us see that gospel doctrine should create a culture of impartiality, which is really the heart of holiness. I think that's the main point of our passage this morning that I'm about to read. Gospel doctrine should create a culture of impartiality, which is really at the heart of true holiness. So let's read this culture-shaping passage together. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'd like us to explore two connections in the text this morning. Two connections. The first is gospel doctrine and impartiality. And the second connection we'll explore later is holiness and impartiality. Let's first look at the connection between gospel doctrine and impartiality. To be perfectly honest, I can understand if verses 1 through 7 sounded like white noise to you. Convicting, sure. <laughs> Maybe depressing. <laughs> but nothing that you haven't heard before, right? I mean, Almost everybody rejects partiality. Almost everybody believes partiality is bad. I mean, Gandhi didn't affirm it. Bob Marley sang against it. And every kid on every playground knows it's bad to exclude others. So given our current climate, which generally affirms equality, what makes James 2 stand out from the noise. Besides the dreads, how is James different from Bob Marley? Who knows, maybe James had dreads, I don't know. But how is he different from what Bob Marley called for in his song, One Love? James 2, 1. This is the distinction. What does James say? What does James say in James 2, verse 1? Show no partiality as you hold on to what? As you hold on to what? What do you see there in verse 1? The faith. The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's the distinction right there. Verse 1. Your eyes may have glazed over it as we read because of the, the brevity of the phrase or maybe the familiarity of the words, but I think it's this phrase that frames the whole passage that we have this morning. James is saying, as you hold on to your faith in Jesus, there's something about the gospel that makes paying more attention to the rich man in verse 3 unthinkable. James is saying, as you hold onto your faith in Christ, there's something about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that should implode dishonoring the poor man in verse 6. It's a small phrase. <laughs> as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But I think it flavors our whole passage. It's got a kick to it. 
It's like a cayenne pepper. <laughs> and if you're a reasonable cook with a reasonable palate, you know you don't need much. <laughs> you know that James does not need much to flavor this passage. The intensity of this small phrase can be tasted in each verse. Get this. Get this. It has the power to flavor a whole church culture. Gospel doctrine has that kind of power. It has the power to overpower partiality, no matter how pervasive the partiality is in a given church culture. We know this just by reading the book of James. Because if you read the full letter, you'll notice just warning after warning against the rich. It's one of the dominant themes in the book, and I think it's a pretty strong clue that partiality towards the rich, idolizing riches, was a particular temptation to James's audience. It's actually really sad when you think about it, and you look at verses 6 and 7. Wealth had such a grip on their lives that what do verses 6 and 7 say? They were trying to please the very people who were oppressing them. The very people who were mocking them and their God. They were saving the places of honor at their dining room tables for the very people who were dishonoring them. As our friend Michael Zuloff put it, they were getting bullied and idolizing the bully at the same time. That's how bad their idolatry was. So I think it's safe to say that partiality had spread throughout the churches represented in James's letter. And at some level, their anti-gospel culture was spoiling the gospel doctrine feast they were preaching. So serious. It's a serious concern that James had to address. And how does he address it? He chops up some gospel peppers in verse 1, and he guides them how to flavor their churches with gospel culture. James is essentially telling them, as you hold the faith, consider how the Lord of glory didn't tell us to sit down at his feet, verse 3. The, the Lord of glory sat down and washed our dirty, stinky, sinful feet. As you hold the faith, consider how Jesus took the seat of a servant so that we can sit as heirs in his kingdom, verse 5. As you hold the faith, consider how Jesus chose the poor in the world to be rich in faith. As you hold the faith, consider that God's promise is to include the unimpressive, the frustrated, the poor, unattractive, overweight, underweight, unsuccessful, irritating, socially awkward, uneducated, and every kind of sinner at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's as if James asks us, if you hold that kind of faith, how could you ever exclude anyone? If you're holding that kind of faith, how could you ever exclude someone? Which doesn't just apply to our treatment of the poor. 
I think James gives particular focus to the rich in verses 2 through 7 because of the presenting problem. But wealth and poverty don't exhaust the implications of this passage. I think since he brings up partiality in verses 8 through 13, but doesn't bring up money again in that same section, I think we actually see that James is concerned about all forms of partiality. So here are two questions, two questions that I would like us to consider today and throughout this week as a church. Two questions. As we hold the faith, number one, who are we showing partiality towards? Whether it's out of self-interest and a desire for our own power or influence or notoriety, who are we favoring? And who are we avoiding? Who are we, who are you, showing partiality towards? And once you ask that question and answer that question, then ask yourself, how does the gospel address that flavor of partiality? Do our dining room tables favor a particular ethnicity? Well then, let's consider the gospel doctrine in Revelation 5-9. By his blood, Jesus ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he has made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Are we avoiding those who differ with us on a matter of conscience, for instance, like politics? Well, let's consider the gospel doctrine in Romans 14, 4. Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are we showing partiality towards? And how does the gospel address that particular flavor of partiality? This is why it's so important, church, for us to know our gospel doctrine. It's the gospel, it's the gospel doctrine that can overpower any partiality. So let's become connoisseurs of gospel doctrine. Chopping up some gospel doctrine and flavoring our church with gospel culture. I know of no other book that can do this as well and inform your understanding as well as, as this book. It just came out recently. It's called You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Weary Churches by Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry. If you're interested in seeing the connection between gospel doctrine and gospel culture, I highly, highly recommend you read this book. Because if this could happen, <laughs> if impartiality went away, or came forth, if partiality went away and impartiality replaced it, if that happened, it would be powerful, wouldn't it? In a culture splintered by bias and exclusion, 
If people came in here and saw a culture of impartiality, it would be so powerful. I was reminded a few months ago that power of impartiality, while sitting in a coffee shop in Fort Lauderdale, reading Pat Conroy's book, The Lords of Discipline. Now, it's not a Christian book, and it needs a heavy filter, but it just captures the beauty and the power of inclusion so well. The novel centers around Citadel University and the freshman cadets there in the 1960s, and the dehumanizing and barbaric hazing that the upperclassmen would show towards the freshman class, what would now be considered highly illegal. It's terrible. One of the most gruesome, gut-wrenching examples of hazing that happened that comes through in the novel relates around to the character Bobby Bentley from Osceola, Georgia. Bobby would get so nervous underneath the hazing and the pressure of the upperclassmen cadets that he, he well, he, he couldn't control his bladder. And every time that the upperclassmen hazed him, he would wet himself. Just complete humiliation. The upperclassmen were ashamed of this freshman cadet, and was, they tried to do everything possible to get him to withdraw from their prestigious Citadel University. But Bobby Bentley from Osceola, Georgia, hung on. He persevered. He didn't want to give up, so he stayed, even through just brutal hazing. And so when the upperclassmen realized that their conventional hazing wasn't working, they did something even worse. They turned the freshman class against Bobby Bentley. The class that was supposed to be bonded together, they told, you better exclude this humiliating cadet. Which is what happened. The freshman class, just over and over again, pushed this young freshman to the side. The, his roommates leave his dorm. No one talks to him. No one sits down next to him in the mess hall. And the hazing just gets worse and worse. And everything that you can imagine of how Bobby is going through this experience is what's happening. Just continuing to humiliate himself over and over and over again. Until a few courageous freshmen decide that they've had enough of it. And they start to befriend Bobby Bentley from Osceola, Georgia. Start to stick up for him. Start to spend time with him. Start to include them. Include Bobby. And slowly but surely, this courage catches on. And the whole freshman class decide they're going to start rallying around Bobby. And so they come up with this plan. They come up with a plan for their next drill formation. And at the next drill formation, 
the upperclassmen do what the freshman class expects them to do. They hone in on Bonham. And they make him humiliate himself again. Urinating, soiling himself for the thousandth time. And with all of their attention on him, they hear something. They hear something they didn't expect. The whole freshman class, in unison, wets themselves. When I first read that, I laughed so loud, the whole coffee shop in Fort Lauderdale could hear me. And then, not 15 seconds later, I start crying all over myself. As I thought about these honorable cadets identifying themselves with this dishonorable cadet, I couldn't help myself. And here's the thing. I knew this was a fictional story. <laughs> Bobby Bentley is not even real. But that's how powerful inclusion can be. That's how powerful impartiality can be. <laughs> Crying at a fictional story. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for us. In our sin and in our shame, we are all Bobby Bentleys. Humiliating ourselves over and over again. And the Lord of glory has identified with us. He was humiliated on the cross for us. He was excluded so we could be included. And as we stand there in our humiliation, soiling ourselves in our sinful shame, Hebrews 2, Jesus is not ashamed in a crowded room and before the whole world watching in. He's not ashamed to call out, that's my brother. That's my sister. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call us dishonorable in our sin. He's not ashamed to call us his. And through Jesus, and because of Jesus, G James is calling us to relate to each other in the same way. To embrace the embarrassed to sit with the sinner. To turn our backs on partiality and pursue impartiality in the name of Jesus. This is the center of gospel culture. Impartiality is at the very center of a culture that's been influenced by the gospel. And believe it or not, Impartiality is also at the very center of holiness. Point number two this morning, the connection between holiness and impartiality. 
Why do you think James refers to the law in verse 8 as the royal law? wondered if you had that question as we were reading through. I mean, it sounds cool, the royal law. (laughs) I want to be fulfilling that. But why does James say it? Is he just trying to spice up his language and sound fancy? Well, I don't think so. Picking up on his kingdom language in verse 5, I think James refers to the royal law because I think he wants to make it clear, super clear, that loving your neighbor as yourself is not just adherence to Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is the verse he's quoting. James wants to make it clear that it's not just adherence to a list of outdated rules that were given to a people thousands of years ago. But rather, it's obedience to royalty, to the king of the verse 5 kingdom. It's obedience to King Jesus, which was an important point for James to point out to his primarily Jewish audience who knew their Old Testaments very well. In the Old Testament, law usually referred to the Ten Commandments, which you may be familiar with, just words that expressed God's will for his Old Covenant people, which was the extent of what law referred to in the Old Testament because that was the extent of God's revealed will. But when the full revelation of God came, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, well, he fulfilled that old covenant law and established a new covenant. And God's will for his people enlarged. And with Christ as the interpretive key of each verse in the Bible, it enlarged to encompass his will in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see this when Jesus talks to the scribes and the Pharisees in the passage that Darren read for us earlier in the service, Matthew chapter 22, when he tells them that love for neighbor is at the heart of the law. Read that again, Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were totally cool with the first part of what Jesus was teaching. And that love for God was at the center of the law. They knew that from Deuteronomy 6. That was not news to them. But when the royal lawgiver says that love for neighbor is like love for God, and on it depends all the law and the prophets, well, this was jarring to this Jewish audience. 
Jesus was taking a command in Leviticus 19 that the Jews had put on the peripheries of God's law for them. And he was taking it and placing it right at the center of God's will for them. James doesn't want his Jewish audience to forget this. They've heard this before, but he does not want them to forget this. And by making this point in the the backdrop of partiality, which we've been talking about, James is very loudly telling them that their partiality is breaking the heart of God's law. Meaning, partiality is a big deal. (laughs) And James wants them to know that their partiality is particularly heartbreaking to the king they're claiming allegiance to. To the king that they are saying they hold the faith to. And the inverse is also true. (laughs) James is saying that if you love your neighbor as yourself and are impartial, well, you're fulfilling the heart of God's will for your life. And if you're fulfilling the heart of God's will for your life, you are doing well. That's what he says. It's a good sign that you're a law-abiding citizen of the king. You're doing well. And I just want to, for just another minute, (laughs) echo those words to you all. We have room to grow, First Boynton, but I think we're doing well. I think we are doing well and resisting partiality in so many ways. I've seen this just all over the place in these past eight months since being here. I've watched how some of you who have been wronged by others, which is going to happen in a church filled with sinners, I've watched how you have sought to include the wrongdoer in your life. That's really hard, but I've seen you do it. I've seen members with a more influential voice highlight the voices of other members with a less influential voice. I've seen you pursue impartiality. And even more important than me seeing it, I want to remind you that Jesus has seen it. He's seen you fulfilling the heart of his will. He sees you doing well. It makes him really, really, really happy. And yet, with all that being said, as we move through our passage, which one of us has not shown partiality? Which one of us has pursued impartiality perfectly? Which one of us hasn't politely and and suavely uh, avoided a church member in the hallway? Because you don't want to talk to them. Which one of us hasn't prioritized our weekly schedules to favor the more impressive members of the church? I know I have. I've done that. (laughs) I know I've broken Jesus' second greatest command. And since that's true, James, is, James tells me, tells us, that we're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Verse 9. 
Verse 9, James says, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And the reason why we're convicted by the law as transgressors is because the law, God's will for your life, comes as a whole package. Verses 10 and 11. He says, Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. As it's been pointed out before, the law is not like the game Jenga, where you can just kind of pick and choose which commands you want to take out. Which ones you think you can do well without? No, the, the law is more like a marriage covenant. If I don't commit adultery, but I abandon my wife, Leah, I have broken our marriage covenant. Even though I haven't committed adultery, right? I've broken the heart of the covenant. The same goes with God's royal law. Comes to us as a whole package. So if we prioritize sexual ethics and scripture memory, church involvement, (laughs) Bible reading, but show partiality, we become convicted by the law as transgressors. We've broken the whole law. Does that sound harsh to you? How can we break the whole law if we do everything else right and just do one thing wrong? Sounds kind of harsh to me at first. Kind of sounds like we've got a 99 on our test, but then the teacher failed us. Well, one of the reasons this is the case is that we have to remember that love for God and love for others tie all of the individual commands together. Love for others is at the heart of the royal law. So when we show partiality, it's like driving a stake into the heart of God's royal law. And if holiness is devotion to God and his commands, then we've simultaneously driven a stake over and over and over again into the heart of holiness. You, I, We've maintained and adhered to the peripheries of his law. (laughs) Washing and scrubbing and grooming the extremities. The extremities look very nice. But we're actively just ripping out the heart of God's will for us, of his law. And simultaneously ripping out the beating heart of holiness. I honestly forget this. (laughs) When I think about holiness, impartiality, it doesn't usually go to the top of my list. No, I think of sexual purity. I think of repenting of crude joking, a pristine prayer life, not eating or drinking too much, disciplined use of social media and Netflix, a pure thought life. 
Impartiality doesn't usually jump to the top of my list of what it means to be holy. But in our passage this morning, it comes to the top of James's list. Impartiality comes to the top of God's list. According to Jesus in Matthew 22, impartiality is at the heart of holiness. This should change everything about our church. This should change how we speak and, has, and how we act. Verses 12 and 13, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or in other words, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged whether you've been partial or not. Whether you've shown partiality. Now it should be clearly and loudly noted that when we stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, we, you, I, will not be saved on our, based upon our track record of impartiality. And we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. But as Martin Luther has said, that faith, the faith that saves, is never alone. The faith that saves will produce repentance and holiness. Gospel doctrine will create gospel culture. Saving mercy in Jesus will necessarily create a merciful follower of Jesus. The mercy will be imperfect. We'll struggle to show it. But if we've tasted and seen the mercy of Christ, if that's genuine, if our faith is genuine, we will show mercy to others. Which explains verse 13. If someone stands before God on judgment day and they've shown no mercy, their life has not been characterized by mercy to others, well then they will be judged without mercy. It's a sign that they never had saving faith to begin with, and apart from saving faith, they will be judged without mercy. Why? Because mercy, love for neighbor, is at the heart of Christianity. Meaning, we as a church could cross all of our doctrinal T's and dot all of our moral I's. We could score a hundred on the judgment test. We could analyze culture perfectly and see how wrong everyone out there is sinning. But if we don't have mercy, we've failed the class of Christianity. We failed it. We've totally flunked this class. Judgment is important, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Which is really good news for this sinner. It's really good news for you. If God's judgment triumphed over 
mercy, what would happen? Well, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. If judgment triumphed over mercy, we would have never had a Savior. I mean, just look at us. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> I'm not passing the judgment test. If Jesus pulled our church up on Match.com, we would not be an appealing eternal bride <laughs> based upon our own works. We deserve, you deserve, I deserve God's wrath in hell for what we've done. But the good news of the gospel is that divine mercy has tasted divine judgment. Mercy embodied. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, both satisfied God's judgment and triumphed over it. And as that mercy make, makes its way up into our hearts, it changes us. It has to. It changes the way we speak to one another. It changes the way that we act towards one another. Do you know something amazing? Is if this reality happens, if that's true of you, not perfectly, but if it's imperfectly true of you, and you're, you're trusting imperfect trust in a merciful Christ, and you are imperfectly showing mercy to others, well, then we don't have to be afraid of that final day of judgment. You don't have any reason to fear being judged under the law of liberty. In fact, you can have humble confidence as you look forward to the day of judgment. Why? How? Because if you're trusting in Christ for salvation, and you've repented, and you're showing mercy towards others, well then, at the day of judgment, all of your partiality will be exposed, but it will only be exposed to exalt the mercy of Christ and Him triumphing over your partiality. And any of the impartiality that you've shown will be rejoiced in, delighted in, celebrated in. I say this because I don't think many Christians think this way when they think of the Day of Judgment. I think many Christians look forward to the Day of Judgment like I look forward to going to the dentist. I know my teeth well enough to know that they're not going to fall out anytime soon. But I also know when I schedule that dentist appointment, I'm signing up for a scolding. Because I know I'm going to sit there in that chair and the hygienist is going to floss and she's going to floss like she's, you know, sawing on an oak tree. <laughs> My gums are going to be bleeding and I'm just going to be like, oh gosh, it's coming. The passive, aggressive question is coming and she's going to ask me like she always does, do you floss? <laughs> I'm going to say no. We'll go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thought so. If that's how you think about Judgment Day, 
let me just tell you this morning. You're just wrong. You're just wrong. That is not how Judgment Day is going to be. Jesus is not going to pull out all of the times you've been partial and pull it out and pull out all of your other sins that you've ever done. He's not going to pull it out for others to squirm in their seats. He's not going to show you how you should have spiritually lost more and why you should feel bad about it. He's not going to take all the pictures of the spiritual stains on your life and just broadcast it for everyone just to mock and to make fun of. No one is going to be mocking on that day. No one, including you, will be squirming in that judgment seat. No. The only thing that will happen when your partiality is brought out is we are going to rejoice. You are going to rejoice in the mercy of God. We all are going to stand up and praise God for His mercy in our lives. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's speak and act with one another this way. Knowing this, with that in view, with our blood-bought freedom in view and the expectation that we will be judged under the law of liberty, let's pursue impartiality, knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have included us in your family. The family that we do not deserve to be in. You have adopted us and brought us in through the blood of your son, Jesus. While we should be excluded, you have included us. Father, I ask that that doctrine, that gospel doctrine, would just detonate in our hearts throughout this week. And it would change how we relate, how we speak, and how we act with one another. There would be no outside or inside, that there would just be one body loving each other as we love ourselves. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.